So about a year and a half ago, maybe two years now, time kind of escapes, you may recall that during the early phases of the COVID pandemic that there was some pretty draconian things happening regarding churches in this country. And one of the worst states to be in was California. In California, there were a couple of churches that resisted the mandate that said you have to close down and lock your doors and stay shut up tight. One of the churches that resisted was, uh, it was the probably the only, what I would call, large congregation to my knowledge in the entire United States that resisted. Many large congregations would have had the power, in my opinion, to resist, and they didn't. They would have had the power to resist because simply by their size and their financial resources, they could have mounted considerable defenses to the state and the local municipalities that were leveling fines and lawsuits and so forth. Well, one congregation did resist that was large, and that was the congregation of John MacArthur. And he stood out as a bright light in a pretty gloomy state, California. All of those large churches collapsed like just a house of cards, but his didn't. And then as the weeks and months passed, I discovered that there was another place where it was kind of a bad place to be, in contrast to other states where it really wasn't as difficult. And that was the, the nation of Canada. And you might recall that that in Canada there were a couple of small congregations that got a lot of heat. And these, this was in western Canada. Well, it turns out the pastor of one of those small congregations had graduated from a small seminary connected to John MacArthur's church. And that captured my attention and I thought, you know, MacArthur is cut from a different piece of cloth. And I began to really follow this man's ministry a little bit more. Now, there are things that I would disagree with the man, but um, as, as time has passed, Julie and I have kind of kept up with some of the things that he has done and some of the things he says. And uh, he is one of those gentlemen who's pretty good at quotations, pithy little quotes. Winston Churchill seemed to have that gift, and Theodore Roosevelt and a few other people who have a gift for words. Well, so does John MacArthur. And Julie found one that she gave to me, and she said to me, you know, this is really good. And I, and I said, boy, it is. It's a pretty simple thought, but it's, in my view, pretty profound, and it's biblical, and it's contrary to much of the spirit of the age, and contrary to certain theological tendencies and inclinations. But this is it, and I, this is what I'd like to share with you. It's very simple, very short. He said... If you could lose your salvation, you would. Amen. Let me repeat that. If you could lose your salvation, you would. Now that speaks to the true condition of man. There's a general tendency, in my view, for humans, for people, us overrate 
our goodness. We overrate our goodness. And we underrate the holiness and the grace of God. And the grace of God is our salvation and it is all to his credit. And it is none of our credit. None. Not a little, none. If you could lose your salvation, you would. Now, as a, there are many passages I could go to. And uh, so I'll, I'll just share with you this one. John chapter 6, verse 44. You'll perhaps recognize it. It says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. John six forty four. With respect to the condition of man, and I don't mean to be depressing this morning, but sometimes we need a little bit of hard and depressing information about ourselves so we can have the correct baseline of reality to build forward and, and improve and understand where we're at. So I know this is not a happy thought <laughs> to say that, uh, that, that our innate being really has no goodness in terms of salvation, but <clears throat> I think it's a valid point and sort of a corollary to that. Here's another real depressing thought. Are you ready? How many of you like to really feel low this morning? All right. So well, let me lay it on you. <laughs> there, there's at least some truth to this. You know, and when it comes to how we look at each other and how we remember each other and in the passing of time when someone passes away and, and uh, beyond the, the kind things we say at the funerals, when we sit back down and, and in the quietness of our minds we reflect upon a person's life, you know, there's, it, and it probably this is a little bit of a function of whether you're an optimist or pessimist or, you, you know, or if you're a bright person or a gloomy Gus, but... There's a general truism to at least some degree here about what I'm going to say. And that is, you're going to be largely remembered in this world by your worst moments. Now, it's easy for us to perceive how the reality of that comes home for those who commit a real crime. The prisons are filled with folks who really have a lot of positive qualities. Regretfully, though, for many of them, they had maybe one big slip-up. Maybe there was a a drunken brawl and they knifed somebody. Maybe, you know, whatever it was. It might have been just one significant slip-up. And that's going to define the rest of their lives to at least some degree. And it's just, a, it's just a tough and unfortunate, gloomy thing we've got to kind of work through. Um, so they may end up in prison for many years. And when they do get out, then they've got that little stamp called felon that kind of follows them around the rest of their days. And that, that's, that, that's tough. That's hard. And I, I feel some sympathy for, for, for folks in that situation. And I, and I, and I think I, all of us, I think can think of examples in life in which you know somebody who's had one major slip up and it's hard for them to escape that 
that, that, that moment, that time, that little narrow window of life in which they made a couple, one or two really, really poor decisions, and it follows them for a long, long time. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it ought to be. And I'm not saying that, that we ought to evaluate each other that way. Maybe there's a pretty good argument that could be mounted to say we really need to, to, to be willing to uh, forgive, do a better job of forgiving others and be able to look beyond their failures. I think there's a real good biblical argument for you and I to say, I'm not going to do that with other folks. I'm going to not take their worst moment and make them drag it around like a ball and chain for the next 15 or 20 years. The flip side of that, though, is that when you consider your own life, that ought to be motivation for yourself to say, boy, when I'm in, under pressure, I'm going to make my worst moment <laughs> as, as uh, how do I say this? My worst moment is not going to be hopefully all that bad. <laughs> I'm going I'm to try my, to live my life in such a way so that it's not hard for other folks to look at me and say, you know, <laughs> that guy has got some good points. But boy, let me tell you, there is, he's a really rotten scoundrel in this or that area. Now, I'm kind of rambling just a little bit, but my, my, my point is, 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 I guess, this. Within each of us, there really lurks some pretty dark corners that can, that, that if, it, if, if we don't let the, the Word of God and we don't let the law of God, and we don't let the light of Scripture and the motivation of the Holy Spirit, if we don't let those factors illuminate some of those dark corners of our lives and really illuminate them, then our worst moment might be kind of bad. And so I, I'd just like to, to, to leave you with this exhortation. Don't overrate yourself. It's really easy to do. If you've got the courage to really ask others, hey, what are my weak points? Go for it. It's a good idea. I'm working on that right now. To be willing to say to my wife and to my kids, what do I really need to work on? What are, what are my real flaws? And I, I would just like to leave the congregation with the, with, with the motivation to, to take, to consider the stressful moments of our life, the, 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 the difficult moments of our life, and, and really, really muzzle down, really bear down, and let the Word of God be our, our anchor and our motivation so that we can get through those and, and so that the, this, this lurking sin nature, this dark corner of our life that's always there and is always, <laughs> always tugging at us, we can keep that in, 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 in restrained as, our, we, as we struggle with the two natures that we have, the nature that Christ has given us and then the nature that, that we continue to have because of this, this body of death, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, this, this dual struggle. So may God bless you. And uh, I'm sorry to be gloomy. This wasn't my, really in my intent. But my intent is simply to, to, to motivate you 
to, to do all you can in the area of letting Scripture and the Holy Spirit illuminate these dark corners and, and, and recognize the reality of, of, of your condition and God's infinite grace that we have when God, out of his immense love, draws us into salvation, pulls us into salvation, and, and calls us out of darkness by his great power. Because all the merit and glory begins, uh, begins and ends with our Father in heaven, and none of it for ourselves. Thank you. Well, thank you, Pastor Eeyore. <laughs> no, it definitely, Pastor Reed Benson, the words that you've spoken are very true. And when Pastor asked us this morning to speak, he told us we had eight to ten minutes to find a couple verses, and I went totally blank. Um, my Bible didn't, though, so I'm grateful for that. Most of what I've heard as I reflected upon these past days, this is the first Passover, or actually first feast that I've ever actually since I've been married, been working or anything like that, the first one that I've ever kept the whole one. And what I mean by that is, is I've been able to be here throughout the whole feast. All the services that I desired to attend, I was able to be here. Uh, and I've been 30-some years, so it's, it's been very unique and different. I mean, I don't understand why people talk about it being so tiring. Um, doesn't seem that bad to me, but I get to go home and go to bed early. <laughs> Now that my kids are a little older and everything, so I get to listen to my uh, children struggle with theirs. But what I've heard during this past week by many of the speakers that we've had, and we've had a lot of speakers that were not from our, our local congregation, from our festival congregation abroad. And the biggest thing that, it, that keeps returning kind of in my ears and in my heart is, is a, a desire for unity, a desire to be brought together. And that is a big thing because as the world's gotten darker, we're all trying to run towards some type of light. And as I thought about this morning, a, a way to, to maybe put that into perspective is to, is to think of church as kind of like a painting. Now, every one of us has a brush. And every one of us, let's say, has a primary color. Now, the world calls color just thrown on a canvas is art. Is that the church that you help make? Do you just take your color, your brush, and just throw it on the wall? Is that your commitment? Or do you allow, let's say, a guide, another painter, a minister, an elder, to direct you in the painting? He has a vision He's been called forth by God to do that. And I understand that a lot more now at my age, especially behind this pulpit here, because I didn't request to be here, but I was called and asked to be here. The church members add the colors. They add the strokes. And for those of you that understand anything about paintings, is, is every painting is able to be identified as either a forgery or a counterfeit, or the real deal by how the strokes are made. Every painter has his own unique strokes upon that painting. Now churches are unique, and they have different paintings all throughout creation. 
So how do you identify them? Would it be by John chapter 13, verse 35? In John chapter 13, verse 35, it says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And there's also a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Love ye therefore the stranger, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. So we're to be impartial. And we should also be unselfish. And I reference Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. And that is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And when we're impartial and unselfish, we also need to be sincere. And that's Romans 12, 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. And when we're sincere, we also need to be abounding with that love one towards another. And I know it's been hard this week, especially with the sickness that there's been, to think, even think about being loving. Because nobody wants to hug somebody else because they might either give them something or get something from them. So, but that being said, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. And the Lord make you increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. We also need to be fervent. And that's in 1 Peter 1, 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth throughout the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now yesterday evening as we also had some young ladies, and no Donna didn't pay me, come forth to be anointed, be prayed over, because they're seeking offices to try and gain back some semblance of order in this nation, starting on a local level, which is what we definitely all need to strive to do. Start small, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. But I would charge these women that they remember that their first charge is towards their family and their children. Don't be overcome with trying to save the world. The biggest world that matters is in the quote of Julie Benson, the ones that you give life. Because when we mess up our children, we impact far more than we can ever fix. And for a closing verse, I'd like to leave you with two verses. Well, a closing verses. One of them being in Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Have not one, hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? By profaning the covenant of our fathers. And in Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Let us therefore judge one another. Let us not, therefore, judge one another anymore, but judge this, rather, that no men put a stumbling block or occasion to fall in his brother's way. I know there are many differences between and amongst us all. We all come from different backgrounds, and I know Mr. Pogue, if those of you that were able to hear his lesson yesterday, summed it up pretty good. A lot of us have changed in what we may have thought that we believed at some point in time in our lives. 
And it is very important for each of us to respect one another's thoughts. Beliefs are very important. And I would say for those fathers out there, yes, it is important to teach our young men to be leaders, but it's equally as important to spend that same amount of time in our young women. And much of that time is spent by our mothers. But um, whenever, I believe it was in Ephesians, when it speaks of a, a wife winning a husband back, or by her conversation without words, bringing him back. In the beginning of that verse, she also has to realize, she has to be able to discern what is truth and what isn't. Your daughters have to be just as equally equipped, if not more, than your sons. We cannot expect our daughters to just take up what our sons, whatever our sons believe. They must be able to defend the faith as equally, if not better. And as we can see now with having two of our ladies within this congregation that are going to be out on the forefront, we don't know where that might take them. But to be able to defend the faith, they have to know it and be established in it. And that's my prayer is, is we leave this Feast of Passover, that we each leave here with hope and a realization that, that we're working towards and for the kingdom. No matter what the political party may do around us, we still have a mission. And may we continue to follow through with that. And may God bless each and every one of you this day, I pray. Thank you. The direction I'm going to go here this morning is uh, found in John. John is actually one of my favorite authors in the Bible. And if you spent much time with John, and even his epistles, you'll see that he's a relationship guy. Well, believe it or not, and I know it's going to be very, very hard for some of you to believe this, but I'm actually very relationship wired. And there's been a lot of that discussed, maybe not directly throughout this feast, but the undertone is a relationship with God. We just had a, a wonderful three-day celebration of his crucifixion and resurrection. And with that, what's the next step? I'm speaking to all of you as if you are saints in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm assuming that everyone here is saved, and, and the verse that I'm going to read is written to the saved. It's not written to the world, it's not written to the unsaved Christian, it's written to the, the ones that is written in the Lamb Book of Life. But now that we're saved, what's next? And I think that if we get this right, a lot of the things, maybe not perfectly, maybe not everything, but a lot of the other struggles that we have with unity, building churches, false doctrines, these things will somewhat dissipate. The issues will not be as great if we can get this principle and understand it properly. And I only have a minute or two to hammer home something that I, I believe is, is easily misunderstood, yet vitally important. So I'm in John chapter 14, verse number 21. 
He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father. And I will love him, and I will manifest myself in him. The relationship with Jesus Christ hinges on our obedience. And it's, it's natural, and I have a little background in psychology, and I understand the importance and also the detriment of embracing our emotions. It is natural that we want to make our relationship with Jesus Christ emotional. But that's dangerous. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have an emotional experience. But what I'm saying is, is that when you say, well, keeping the law is great, but God wants more than that. And I hope I don't say this wrong, but it, that's not really true. God wants your obedience. That is your will. He doesn't want your feelings. That's just a physiological response that you have. And the reality is, if we follow our feelings, even with our relationships, they're not going to be always good. If Mr. Benson walks up here, and the other night I thought he was, I kind of had to duck back. I thought he was coming at me. If he was to walk up here and slap me right now, if I follow the principle that my relationship is all about what I feel, am I going to have a righteous feeling? No. I'm going to want to slap him back. But if I have an obedient relationship, I'm going to say, turn the other cheek. You see the difference? I can't have a true, loving relationship with Christ, with our Father in heaven, if I'm solely based on how I'm feeling at the moment. It has to come down to obedience. And I'll go so far as to say this. You can do your very best to keep God's law and not love God. But you cannot love God and not keep his law. It's that simple. So if, if you truly have a desire, and that we'll say that, that's the will, not my feeling. Uh, the, I have a, a desire, a will, that I want to love God. And I want to be loved by God. The verse I just read is where we want to be. And I want to read the last part there again. It says, not only will I love you, or Jesus saying, I will love him, him who is obedient to me. I will manifest myself in him. You want to be Christ-like? You want Christ to come forth through your life? It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has everything to do with what you do. And here's the thing. We, our emotions, if you want that emotional experience, that's great. I've had lots of emotional experiences this festival. Good ones. I'm talking about the good ones. <clears throat> We've had some really good services. And we had last night's sermon... I really enjoyed that. I had an emotional experience that was positive. But if Reed got up here and was preaching hell and damnation, I would still have an emotional experience that wouldn't be positive. And I have to push through that and embrace that what he may be saying is what's best for me and my relationship with God. If we could, real quick, turn to uh, 1 John, same author. I'm going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him, Jesus Christ, if we keep his commandments. 
Understanding what it means to, I bet you there's several of you out there. I, I am at the uh, edge of it. I haven't quite got to this point, but I know there's many of you out there that have. That's had a teenage daughter or a teenage son come home and go, oh my goodness, I just met the love of my life last night. If you're wise, you probably said something along the lines of, well, you don't even know him. Well, you don't even know her. That's true. We have to really say that we love somebody. We have to truly know what it is that we're committing our will to. And there are a lot of people out there that are saying, oh, I love Jesus with all my heart. And they know so little of him. And what does Jesus say about those people? Verse number four. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Those are strong words, and I'm not here to be a Debbie Downer, but I'm here to be honest with you as we leave. This is our last opportunity to hear anything from the pulpit. I want you to leave with this understanding that if you truly, we've heard it, We've had amens, we've had people raising their hands, all in the, in the direction that I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. Please hear me when I, I tell you that that stems around our willingness, our, our desire to be obedient to him. And with that, then we're, we get to know him. We get to know who he is. And then when I say, I'm a, I'm a believer of Christ, I'm not a liar. And I understand what he wants. I begin to understand to a very small degree. We're never going to keep things perfect. It's all about our, our just doing the best we can. But the more we do it, the easier it gets. And the more we do it, the closer we come to understanding who he is. And so it's all about relationships. So I'll leave you with this verse. I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Wherefore, come out from among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Nothing separates you from the world than that, ten, that list of ten things right there. It, it doesn't just separate you from a dramatic perspective. I'm a Christian, you're not a Christian. It separates you that you even, if you're honest with yourself, it keeps you from as we read in the previous verses, being able to really interact with them at a social and intimate level. If I truly want to follow God's law, I'll find that when my coworkers say, hey, you want to go to the bar tonight for a drink? Well, no one's going to see it. No big deal. But you just have to say no. That's not where I need to be. And doing that brings that automatic separation. So you don't necessarily, these verses here don't necessarily mean that you got to go out and stand on top of a hill and say, listen, I'm a Christian and I ain't like one of you guys, so I'm separate, so just stay away from me. No, it's the daily interaction with the world. When we, it's in work, whether it's in school, whether it's just at Walmart, whatever it is, you will find that if you're truly committed to obedience, that relationship with God, that you will force to be separated from people that you may love and like. And when I say love that time, I'm talking about emotion. Do you really know them? No, you just like the way they, you know, they say nice things about you. Oh, I love you. You're my best friend. Until you say something I don't like. Then I don't like you anymore. And then to close this out, continuing on, verse 18. 
Here's what will happen. I believe I've got this right. If we are obedient, which will draw us closer to Christ, that will bring a natural separation from those who God does not want us to associate with. This is what he's going to do. This, I hope, is the relationship that everybody deep down inside has been desiring, even if we haven't quite been real sure how to get there. But here's what, what we get. And it says, I will be a father. This is God. God will be a father unto you. And, shall, and ye shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Thank you for your time. Those were wonderful words. I think all of us, let's start this timer. I think all of us have probably had seen some things in the last year, maybe the last two years that we thought we'd never see. But it's wonderful to know that God is still in heaven and that God's in control of all of this. And I think it would do us good to maybe turn our minds just for a few minutes to ask ourselves, have we, have we learned anything? Have we learned anything maybe this week? Have we learned anything this year? Have we learned anything and what are we going to do with it? The prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, he's, in some ways he's one of my favorites. He was called the weeping prophet. He lived under a, in a terrible time and he, he lived his whole life trying to tell people to turn to God. And it, from the, what we read of him, not very many people listened. And I think that's something we can probably identify with in the world today. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 30, he says, this is God speaking. This is the prophet speaking, and, and, and this, this is God saying, In vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Your own sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Now I want you to think about that a minute. Now, I think maybe in the last, like I said, year or two, Maybe all of us have been smitten to some degree or less. But when God corrects, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. We've got to take that, and it's, it's hard. Because it's, it's easy to get mad and get frustrated and, and to harden your face. But we, we have to take that to heart. And we've got to look at that and say, Lord, if I've been smitten, don't let it be in vain. Let me learn. Let me receive the correction that you want to give to me. And if we want as Christians, and as, as we say we're the people of God, we say we believe in Christ. We say that, that, that we believe these things and we want to live these things. Well, let's take the correction and let's apply it in our lives and let's look at ourselves and let's, let's ask ourselves, what do I need to change? What do I need to do different in my life? What do I need to stop doing or what do I need to start doing? And go forward from that point. And don't let it be said of us to have been smitten in vain, to have received no correction. See, that's, that, that is the point. God, God's not, God doesn't punish because, well, I'm, God doesn't punish his children because, well, I'm angry and I just want to cause them pain. He's calling you back. He's calling you to be corrected. And it's, it's our responsibility 
It's our responsibility to look at ourselves, look at our own life, look at the life of, of how we're living in our private lives. You know, in a place where nobody else can see, but God can see. And let's look at how we live when we go out in public, when people say, well, that person claims to be a Christian, but man, he ripped me off for $20 last week. Oh, he did something dishonest. Oh, he's doing, you know, whatever it is. We've got to put those things away. As the scripture tells us, to set aside the sin that does so easily beset us. It's not the idea that, well, I'm a Christian, so sin can't touch me. It doesn't beset me. That's not what the scripture says. Scripture says it, is, it easily besets us. Don't let it be said of us. In vain have I smitten your children. They received no correction. That, that is the children of Israel. Let, my prayer is that God would say, be able to look at us and say, I have issued the correction and they received the correction. And that if we want, if we really want, here's the thing, do, do you really want it? If we really want this idea of, oh, we want unity, we want to be a body, we want to be all moving in the same direction, do you really? Do you really want that? Because do you know what you're asking for? Because God, God can give you that, but you got to be willing to go where God leads. Sometimes where God leads might not be where you thought you were headed. Don't let it be said of us by our Lord, in vain have I smitten your children. They receive no correction. Let us, let us receive his correction, whatever it might be. Let, and that's the thing, that's the call. We got to, we heard it, those of us who were here the night of a week ago, when we came here to the front and took the communion. We're called to examine ourselves. The Lord calls us to do that. We're called to examine ourselves, put away things. If we would examine and if we would judge ourselves, God wouldn't have to go to such extreme lengths to judge us. That particular theme continues in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, it's in numerous places in the New Testament, but I'm just going to focus on this one. The principle is in many places. The First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Well, let me go back to verse 11. What is Paul is saying? You know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God. See, that's the, that's the goal, that, that if you've been called... And God does the calling, God does the choosing, God does the saving. But he's calling you in that whole process to walk worthy who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. It's not a game. We're not, it's, we're not playing a game. And it's so easy in the modern world to think we're playing a game. And we're not. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. And see, this is what... We all should be, be, be thankful for. This is what your, your minister would be thankful for, what a, a faithful minister would be thankful for in you. Because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men. It's not a suggestion. It's not just a, well, this might help you out. Why don't you try this? You received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God 
And I think this is what ties us all together, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. If the word of God is present and alive, it's going to have an effect. You cannot say, well, I'm saved. I'm a Christian person. Maybe even come forward, take communion, do all the things, and then go right back out and go back to living like the devil the next day. You can't do that. There's something wrong there. Because if that effectual word of God has come to you, it will effectually work also in you that believe. And as, as Paul, he goes on here to say, Ye brethren became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. Now think about it. If we've become followers of the scripture, we've become followers of the God of the scripture. If we have received the Holy Ghost, we have to walk worthy of this kingdom and this glory. It's not, this is not really an option or just something you, you do when you feel like it. And I really do believe that if we would all, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody else, if we would all put that in our mind, when you, when you leave here, and think about that wherever you have to go, whatever your situation is where you are, and I know it's, it's rough out there. It's, it's bad out there, I know that. But whatever, wherever you have to go, keep that in your mind to walk worthy of the God who has called you unto his kingdom and glory. And maybe, there, you know, we, we can all work as we can to help each other to do that. If you, you want to have unity, you want to have a body, that's how you do it. We help each other along the way. We help, if we see a brother stumble, we try to help him back up. All of those things that, that, that will lead us, if we will focus our mind and our thoughts and our purpose in that vein and in that way, God will make a path for us through this world, even in the, the darkness that surrounds us. I hope that that will be some word of encouragement to you, and I hope that you'll, you'll take that and go from here and be blessed and be energized to be able to walk and do what God has laid out for us in the days ahead. Thank you.